Uh, hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 and reading verses 18 to 25. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? in whose way they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of his battle. It set him on fire all around, and he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. All of us, uh, on occasion, are disqualified for certain positions and pursuits in life for whatever reason. I will tell you, I'm not qualified to uh, join the PGA Tour. Uh, I know the reasons, uh, simply not good enough and never will be good enough, and so I will never qualify for the PGA Tour. Uh, most of us have seen athletes disqualified, maybe substance abuse, maybe a sprinter uh, uh, has two faults, and so he's disqualified. I could go on and on, but you understand that there are pursuits in life that disqualify uh, us for many various uh, reasons. But this morning we're going to look at uh, a spiritual disqualification before God that is the ultimate in tragic loss. There are many things that can disqualify us. I'm going to look at a couple, uh, but it will uh, revolve around the nation of Israel uh, because they're disqualified. It's important for us to brace their disqualification as a warning to us as Christians uh, because uh, there are texts that speak to the church of Jesus Christ being disqualified. And so... It's an issue that we must uh, look at from the standpoint, uh, beginning standpoint of the nation of Israel. Uh, it is an uh, important lesson uh, to look at the nation of Israel because Israel was a servant son of God. And so here in this text, uh, God is going to tell them that they are disqualified. And that, as you know, is set against the, the context of the servant son who is the great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at the text that began our study this chapter, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Behold, my servant 
whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's dealing uh, from a perspective view with the coming of the Messiah. And of course, Christ is uh, the one that meets that qualification. And his qualifications are absolutely impeccable. Uh, that, by the way, is a hint as to how you yourself can be, become qualified, namely to be in, in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are qualified forever. But again, the nation of Israel throughout uh, this prophecy is also spoken of as, as a servant. Look at verse 19. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf is my messenger? So there is a contrast between the servant nation and the true servant son. Or we could say it in this way, the servant nation is going to fail, and so God is going to raise up another servant, uh, and all who are in him will be blessed perpetually. Well, so what, what disqualifies the servant nation? Well, it's their idolatrous estate. Israel is identified as a servant. She was to be a servant to expand the presence of God. By the way, that's also a calling of the church to expand the presence of God throughout all the world, uh, teaching and proclaiming the gospel, baptizing. Uh, but Israel rejected God for idols, and that is why God disqualifies her. Uh, and so here Isaiah, the prophet, engages them with the profound reality of a present judgment beginning with their spiritual lives, verses 18 and 22, a spiritual Judgment falls upon the servant nation uh, because they are disqualified before God to be his servant. So let's look at the disqualification seen in the present judgment that's detailed for us in verses 18 to 22. Uh, <clears throat> it's essential to grasp uh, that the judgment is a present reality. We oftentimes think that as Christians, judgment is only future, uh, but judgment is a present reality. And that is evidence in that the nation, the servant nation, is in a bad way spiritually. Uh, begin the text, verse 18, Hear you deaf, and look you blind that you may see. Isaiah is taunting the nation. Very difficult concept for us as Americans. We... We are taught not to taunt people, not to mock them. But the prophet is mocking them and uh, taunting them with a very bitter irony. He says, uh, he says, you're to hear, but you're deaf. You're to look and see, but you're blind. Seemingly at first blush, that's uh, unconscionable. Uh, but there is a sinister force at work for which they are responsible and accountable, and that's why they are disqualified. That's why they are blind, and that's why they are deaf. Uh, it is a horror that is traceable uh, to the call of the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Old Testament, I trust you do, turn back to the call of the prophet Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 9 and 10. Uh, this text is the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah to go to the servant nation of Israel. And what is he to do? Verse 9, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, literally fat. Go fatten their hearts. Their ears dull. Stop up their ears, literally. 
and their eyes dim, smear over their eyes. Look at the purpose, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. It's a call to the prophet Isaiah. It's what he's charged to do. Uh, notice the eyes and ears. Uh, stop up their ears and smear over their eyes so they cannot hear and cannot see. That's a present judgment that Isaiah is to prosecute, and it's traceable to their idolatry. Uh, idolatry is a transformational event. Now, the allusion is to our call to worship. Uh, Psalm 115. Uh, the call of the prophet is an allusion to Psalm 115. It's a rehearse of the verses that called us to worship this morning. I mean, there's first four, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hand. Now look at, look at uh, the description of the idols. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear, noses, but they cannot smell, they have hands, but they cannot feel, they have feet, but they cannot walk, they cannot make a sound with their throat. Now notice the warning in verse 8, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. This uh, theology is repeated in Psalm 135, nonetheless... Uh, their idolatry is the cause of their spiritual insensitivity to God. That's why they cannot hear and they cannot see spiritually. They've been blinded and they've been rendered deaf because of their worship of idols. And the warning of the psalmist is those who make them will become like them and those who trust in them uh, will become like them. So again, idolatry is a transformational event. That's the timeless truth that people become like the gods that they serve. They've been engaging in idol worship, and so God transformed them to be like idols. They lose the ability to hear the word, uh, to see uh, the great works of God, and to respond to them accordingly. It's a terrifying prospect of judgment, and that's why they're disqualified, and they're being held accountable because they're responsible. They pursued the idols, and they've become like them. It is as if God is saying, you value your idols so much, you love your idols, don't you? I'll make you just like them. And idols have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. <clears throat> so parallel to this uh, that begins the entire book of Isaiah, uh, if you turn back to the first chapter, you, we have a description uh, of the nation uh, we know that all of creative history begins in a garden. Uh, you and I are to manifest the glory of God. We become a garden-like people. We know from the book of the Revelation that we will be returned to a garden. But we know that before we are returned to the garden, that God will make us like trees and our, our leaves will not wither. And whatever we do, we prosper. The great theology of Psalm 2. We're to be like trees, the trees of God that are in the garden of God, manifesting his divine presence of glory. Look at the description of the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 29 to 31. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. That's a reference to idolatry. They desire to be like the trees of pagan God, gods made out of wood. And you will be embarrassed by the gardens which you have chosen, or the gardens where the the, the idols are worshipped. 
For you'll be like an oak whose leaf fades away or is a garden that has no water. You want to worship in the wrong place? God will make you like that wrong place and your garden will have no water. Therefore, it will cease to be a garden. Uh, you, You will become like a tree and you will have no leaf and you will not prosper in whatever you do. So the prophet is called to go execute judgment because of their idolatry. In the process, they have become become unable to respond to God because their senses are destroyed so that they cannot process spiritual information and repent. It's a present judgment, a terrifying reality uh, because the nation is disqualified because of their idolatry. Look at an illustration of it in, in verse 20. You have seen many things, but you don't observe them. Your ears are open, but no one hears. In other words, they cannot process spiritual information because they've become like the gods that they serve. Uh, They're disqualified because they cannot see or hear. Idolatry, if you will, is the path of self-induced destruction uh, as one is conformed to the nature of the idol, which is spiritually dead. It's a form of slow spiritual suicide. it is very instructive, if you want to turn in your New Testament to uh, John chapter 12, uh, that John quotes the call of the prophet Isaiah as the reason that so few people uh, in his day responded to the earthly ministry of Jesus. And John simply quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10. Uh, Let's read a couple of, uh, of these texts, uh, John chapter 12 and verse 37, that really sets up the context. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Uh, you recall in John 11, there was one of the greatest signs of all, the resurrection of Lazarus. Who could see Lazarus coming out of the tomb and not believe? The problem is they couldn't see because they'd been blinded. That's the point of the text. So few responded because they could see Lazarus, but they could not handle the spiritual information and make a consequential judgment in light of it and come to faith. Because they've been blinded. And and, and let me give you the crowning blow to that in John chapter 12 in verses 38 to 40 that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been believed? For this cause they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. That Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the prophet. In other words, the present Judgment of idolaters in Isaiah's day is still in force in Jesus' day, and for that matter, our day. It's a terrifying application that the judgment of God is a present reality on their spiritual lives that puts them in incredible spiritual danger, so much so, and yet they walk a path of danger, but they cannot comprehend their spiritual estate. 
I give you one application from the book of the Proverbs. A wise man once said, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The nation is being played fast and loose with their hearts, chasing after their idols, and it's destroyed them. Reminded to us to be sober about what we give our hearts to. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life itself. So they're disqualified because of idolatry, and they've become like the idols that they've served. Israel is also disqualified because they exalt uh, their tradition over the love of God. Uh, there's an outworking of the, uh, uh, the call of the prophet Isaiah in the 29th chapter. Again, uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is the call and commission of the prophet. Let's watch his ministry unfold. And one such occasion is Isaiah chapter 29. I'm going to read verses uh, 9 to 13. Uh, in other words, it's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Uh, be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. And again, you can see the allusion to Isaiah 6. Uh, but here the metaphor changes. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. And the entire vision shall be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Uh, then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Then the Lord said, verse 13, because his people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They're just simply practicing tradition as an element of the successful fulfillment of the commission of the prophet uh, to render them blind and unable to respond. Notice the metaphor of drunkenness. We're somewhat familiar with that, are we not? Uh, uh, don't, uh, don't drink and drive. Why? Because uh, alcohol uh, is a depressant, and it renders you unable to respond to uh, events that happen, happen quickly on a highway. The nation is drunk, and so they cannot respond to the quick events of the ministry of the prophet and everything that's going on about them and the terrible prospect of judgment. They cannot process the information because of their idolatry, and the idolatry is expressed in tradition learned by rote. Well, Jesus so, uh, cites Isaiah chapter 29 in uh, Mark chapter 7. So it was two of the people of Israel... Uh, in the days of the prophet Isaiah are now true again in the ministry of Jesus uh, respecting the nation at large. Uh, the context is uh, the Pharisees observed the disciples of uh, Jesus eating without having ceremonially cleansed their hands. And so they go to Jesus and say, well, how is it that your, 
your disciples can eat without being ceremonially cleaned. And he, he cites uh, Isaiah 29 uh, for their failure. The Pharisees, therefore, are the antitype to the people in the days of Isaiah. Uh, the prophecy, of course, is indirect, but judgment is intensified as Jesus is the greater. Let's look at Mark chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. He said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of, your, of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. In other words, throughout all of their religion, they've developed a, a litany of tradition, and it's an expression of the hardness of their hearts because their hearts are removed from God as they follow the tradition of men as over and against the commandments of God. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, uh, Jesus says to them, you, uh, you people that are blind are following blind leaders and you're both going to fall into the ditch uh, because of their idolatry. In other words, they have erected in their tradition an idol and it's rendered their hearts insensitive and unable to process the precepts of, uh, of God. And that's why they're quibbling over ceremonial cleansing before they eat. Not an issue of hygiene. Uh, issue that they've exalted some ceremony of man uh, as over against the word of God. There's a great illustration of this in uh, Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago. Uh, <clears throat> city of Manhattan, uh, New York City, Manhattan, uh, there is some very uh, strong uh, fishing uh, line that's uh, strung all over the city, 18 feet off the ground, uh, to enable uh, conservative Jews to go outside of their homes on the Sabbath and do work, like pushing a stroller or carrying a prayer book or carrying a casserole to a sick friend. In other words, they've erected this tradition, this tradition that they could extend the boundaries of their homes by this fishing line? 18 feet off the ground? Are you kidding me? Where's that found in the Bible? It's not. It's just simply Jewish tradition that they've developed to enable them uh, to circumvent their own sabbatical laws. A number of years ago, there was an Orthodox woman uh, who uh, was cooking food uh, on a hot plate on, on low. And uh, because she could not turn the hot plate off, started a fire and killed seven of her children. She couldn't work on the Sabbath, and turning a stove off is doing work on the Sabbath. Now, how does that comport with uh, the great teaching of the Old Testament? Love God and love your neighbor. You can't even love your kids to turn the stove off? No, you can see the tradition of man that's been exalted above uh, the essence of the teaching of the law of God that instructs us to love our neighbor and turn a stove off. But erecting fishing lines is the darndest thing I've ever read. But so it is in Orthodox Judaism. Next time I go to Manhattan, I'm going to look for that fishing line, 18 feet off the ground. They spend $125,000 a year maintaining that fishing line. And so you think the judgment of the prophet Isaiah is still in effect? Ponder the thought. 
Isaiah chapter 29. Love the precepts of men above the precepts of God. Well, reason, reason for uh, such idolatry and their danger, uh, well, again, they've rejected uh, the glory of God uh, and the divinely appointed uh, way to find God. Uh, we find that in Isaiah chapter 42, verse, verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious, but they've perverted it, twisted it, uh, stacked tradition upon tradition on top of it. Uh, they reject uh, the very intent of the law. And so what do they do? Verse 24, uh, they were not willing to walk in the ways of God and they did not obey the law of God. By the way, the New Testament has an illustration for this, uh, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles. Uh, I wonder, do we commit idolatry today? Well, of course we do. And the Apostle Paul says, for example, that covetousness is, is, uh, is idolatry. Uh, but the great text of uh, uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchanged the glory, the majesty of God who cannot be expressed in some clay image. But you see it everywhere in our culture. And so what does God do? He does exactly what he did in uh, Isaiah chapter 42. He, he makes them like the gods that they serve. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, God turned them over. Uh, you cross God and make an idol of him, terrible things happen. He turns them over. Verse 26, again, he turns them over. Stated a third time, uh, verse 28, he turned them over uh, to great illicit passions to destroy them. Again, we don't think of judgment in those terms. We think, well, judgment is long ago. It's way, way in the future, and uh, I'll get it right before then. Uh, you begin to chase idols and the tradition of men, and you have no clue as to how dangerous it is. The prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled in the days of Jesus, and again, I think even in our own day, as we insert our tradition on top of the Word of God. Again, we see the, uh, the application of, uh, of the judgment uh, expressed uh, by the prophet uh, Isaiah chapter 42, uh, in verse, uh, verse 22, uh, if you look at the latter part of the, the verse, and uh, they have become a prey with none to deliver them, and a spoil with none to say, give them back. It means that their spiritual condition has become hopeless. Hopeless. None to give them back. Again, we don't think in terms of the terrifying danger of worshiping false gods. That's how the scripture tells us of the danger. Uh, but the effects are the spiritual loss of sensory organs so necessary to apprehend the truth and to process the truth and to repent. 
Let's look at an application illustration in uh, the New Testament, uh, 1 John. kind of intensifies the reality for us. Uh, if you've ever studied 1 John, it uh, has a number of warning passages uh, and evidence for true genuine faith. For example, one evidence of true genuine faith is you believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You have to be that to be a Christian. Would it surprise you that there are professing Christians today that deny the incarnation? I have a friend of mine that's uh, hopefully beyond an acquaintance. Uh, he's a priest in a church. He says, in my church, you can deny the incarnation of Christ. You can deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as long as you believe in ordaining women, you're orthodox. Really? This is a Christian church? You can deny the incarnation and be ordained as a priest? John in his first epistle says, no, that's not the case. You're not even a Christian if you deny that Jesus Christ was the God-man. But that's the way we do it in America. We're so progressive and advanced and uh, changing all the anachronisms of Scripture. that We come up with our own theology, just like the Jews can erect a fishing line in Manhattan and believe they can break the Sabbath. May God help us. But the entire epistle of 1 John closes, 1 John 5, 21, with these words. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. What's the idol in 1 John? False teaching. He's warning them on false teaching that leads to idolatry. Because you inject false teaching in the life of the church... You are teaching people literally the wrong way to serve the one true God. And you'll end in the ditch just as you've built some brass idol. Because God not only appoints himself as the one true God, he also appoints the way to approach him and the way to serve and to follow him. And so John concludes his entire epistle with those words, guard yourselves from idols. And the idol in, in uh, the epistle is false teaching. Look at the illustration of the judgment uh, that's disqualified the nation, uh, magnified uh, Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 23 to 25. Again, the context is the disqualification of the servant nation that renders them uh, not able to serve the one true God. Isaiah 42, verses 23 to 25. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunder? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And in whose ways they were not willing to walk and in whose laws they did not obey? So he poured out on them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle. Look how it takes shape in the latter part of verse 25. And it set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it. And it burned him, but he paid no attention. In other words, they're playing with danger, but they cannot process the information so they don't recognize their danger and they pay no attention to it. They don't set their heart to it because they cannot process the information correctly. 
So ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about idolatry in the church. Sometimes churches are dangerous places to go, and they will utterly transform you in ways that you cannot begin to comprehend. You cannot play with the truth of the word of God and the identity of Jesus Christ as the God-man and only way of salvation and think that your clothes are not on fire and yet you won't feel the heat because you've already been transformed into the idol which you have served, whether it be wrong doctrine or theology or wrong gods. The terrifying danger of being disqualified as a servant of God. Again, they can't draw the right conclusion because of their spiritual condition. There's something of an illustration of this in the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word, Paul says, Timothy, preach the word. You know why he tells them to preach the word? Because a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but seeking teachers after their own desires who will tickle their ears. They will turn away from the truth and chase after myths. The terrifying prospect of spiritual danger that was already present in the days of the Apostle Paul. Epidemic today. People chasing folly and silliness. Uh, one of my heroes as a young student was uh, a Polish scientist, French scientist, Madame Curie. She studied radioactivity. You know how she died? Radioactivity. She didn't understand the danger of what she was studying. She would carry test tubes of radioactive material around in her pocket. Great scientists. I mean, every scientist does that. They get, you know, they're studying, so they put a few test tubes in their lab pocket. And she was always intrigued by the strange light the test tubes gave off, but she didn't understand the danger. She had them in her, her drawer at work, uh, studying, that's what she was. She was a great scientist. She studied it so diligently it killed her, and she died of radioactive poisoning. Sometimes we are dying in the church of bad theology and chasing idols of which we know not of the danger. And we're becoming disqualified, and we don't even have a clue as to what's happening. We live in dangerous times. So what's the cure? This entire text is about judgment. The gospel has to be somewhere. It is. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the cure for idolatry. Because God always makes provision. He gathers his people wherever they are in times of danger. And of course, we know it. It's his initiative and sovereign grace the sovereign grace of God, chasing his own and running them to ground, healing them in the gospel. It's present in our own text. We've already studied this, but I bring your attention to it again. Uh, the nation's going to be thrown into the prison that we know as the Babylonian captivity. Uh, but, but notice what it says of the true servant in verse 7. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 7. That he came to open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the dungeons. And those who dwell in darkness in the prison. 
what the Savior does. It's great to know in the gospel that uh, we can damage ourselves so incredibly, and yet, if he wills to save us, he can open our eyes so that we might see. Another expression of the gospel uh, prophecy of Isaiah, his ability to cure idolatry, uh, is uh, in the call of the prophet, by the way. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, going to read verses 5 to 7, then I said, this is the prophet Isaiah, he realizes he's in trouble because he's, he's standing near the presence of God and the majesty and the holiness of God. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, in a, in a sense, is saying, I'm ruined. I have unclean lips. In the ancient Near East, ancient Near East, when priests would build an idol, they would consecrate it in a mouth-washing ceremony before the idol was put into service. It's exactly what Isaiah is saying. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. It's, it's a taunt of idolatry. Uh, we've become uncleaned, and, and we cannot uh, engage in some pagan mouthwashing ceremony to make us qualified as the servants of God. What does God do? Verse 6, And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. All of that is in the context of idolatry. Pagans take an idol and give it a mouth-washing ceremony before they put into service. And the prophet is saying, I'm a man of unclean lips, and God takes the initiative, and the seraphim comes and cleanses his lips. It's the only cure that God is reaching one of his own, a member of the true remnant in the prophet Isaiah, and cleansing his lips so that he can serve him, prosecute his ministry as a qualified servant of God, and so the prophet was. What a great reminder of the majesty of God who takes the initiative to reclaim the prophet and to fit him out for worthy service. The, uh, the prophet uh, Ezekiel speaks in a similar vein of the initiative of our great God to recover people from idolatry and the dangers of, of being disqualified. Isaiah chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Again, the cure for idolatry. We've learned of its dangers. Uh, we learned how the nation got there. What's the good news? The good news is that God can cure Isaiah chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. Uh, I'd like you to pay particular attention, close attention to the subject, because that's everything. God is speaking. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. By the way, the heart of stone is a, a reference to idolatry because they weren't just worshiping gold and silver idols, they were worshiping idols of wood and stone. 
and they've been transformed radically so their hearts become as stone. And a stone heart can't respond to God. But God in the great promise of the gospel of the greater new covenant will come and take that heart away and make the heart alive by his cleansing work of sprinkling water and putting a new spirit. By the way, the Apostle John picks up this language in John chapter 3, the great uh, acknowledgement of the cleansing work of God as he speaks to uh, Nicodemus. John, uh, John chapter 3 and verse 5. I think he's alluding uh, to uh, the new covenant spoken of by the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, John chapter 3 and verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. The water imagery that John is using and the promise of the spirit is an allusion uh, to God at work in the great new covenant of the gospel where God comes and does heart surgery and gives us new hearts so that we might believe and respond and process spiritual information and repent and believe and come to faith and be saved forever and ever for the greatness of the glories of qualified service and the work of God. Failure under the old covenant, the servant is disqualified, but God acts again in grace as he always does. And God takes the initiative and God does the work. I love the imagery of John 3. The spirit blows where he wills. He comes and gives life where he wills. He does heart surgery on his people to recover them like he did Isaiah the prophet. So Isaiah tells us how one can become disqualified. Of course, it finds fulfillment in the New Testament. But Jesus tells us how to become qualified in the essence of the gospel. God comes to us in sovereign grace, does heart surgery, cleanses our lips so that we might believe in him and praise him forever and ever. I call that the gospel. If you're not a Christian, you'll never escape the gods that you serve. They'll destroy you. How can you get out of their destructive, deceptive power? Come to Christ. Believe upon him. Ask his spirit to do the work of a skilled surgeon. Heal you. Give you a new mouth. The power of the spirit of God. Now come to the faith. Come to Christ. Come to the Savior. It's the only way to escape. And in the interim time before Christ comes again, follow the truth age-old trail that God has set before his people in the word of God. His spirit will guide you there, lead you there. The great words of uh, the psalmist, lead me in the paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. That's what God does for his people. He saves them and then he leads them in the path to everlasting glory. So there's only one cure for an idolatrous world and an idolatrous church the Lord Jesus. I trust in God's grace. He's your cure because there is no other.